Hey, and welcome to McLean's Pop Culture Podcast, The Thrill, for the week of March 6th. On this week's show, Comics Sans Filter. We bring in our guest Steve Murray, who, under the pseudonym Chip Starsky, is the illustrator of Marvel Comics' Howard the Duck reboot, and whose original comic series, Sex Criminals, is going to be on TV soon. We'll talk about comics as mainstream culture, his new projects, and about Michelle Rodriguez's controversial comments about superheroes and race. And without a prayer, we'll take it there in regards to what we've heard so far from Madonna's new album and talk about whether there's such a thing as a pop culture expiry date. I'm Adrian Lee, and I'm a digital editor who writes about arts and music. And I'm here with... I'm Emma Title, and I'm a columnist. And over to my right... I'm Julia Delorentis Johnson, and I'm the editorial assistant. week, Michelle Rodriguez, an actor probably best known for um, the part that she plays in the Fast and Furious franchise, spoke out against the trend of casting performers from a variety of colors and genders as superheroes that are traditionally perceived as white guys. There are recent rumors that Donald Glover from the TV show Community is being tapped as the next Spider-Man, and Michael B. Jordan is set to play the Human Torch in the 2015 reboot of the Fantastic Four. And both superheroes are traditionally white guys, but these actors are black guys. And Rodriguez's comments came after she herself was asked if the rumor was true, that she was going to be cast as the next Green Lantern. She since apologized for her comments and clarified that what she meant to say was that instead of diversifying existing superheroes, Hollywood should stop being lazy and that people, essentially non-white and straight guys, should develop their own mythologies. So, okay, we're going to get to the meat of that in a second, but first I'd like to introduce our guest, comic maker Chip Zdarsky. If you know anything about comments, you'll probably hear of this guy. He's co-creator with Matt Fraction of the Sex Criminal series, a comic about a couple who can freeze time with their orgasms, and then they naturally turn into bank robbers. Time Magazine called Sex Criminals the number one comic series slash graphic novel of 2013. And it won a Will Eisner Award, which is the Oscar of comics, for Best New Series in 2014. Zdarsky was also tapped by Marvel to revamp Howard the Duck. And the first issue of the new series comes out March 11th. And he's also coming out with a series called Kiptara due out this April, a sci-fi story uh, with a gay Indian man as the main character. So hi, Chip. Thanks for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Um, you've got a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, I should, I should go. Yeah, I should go. Not. I'm not sure why I'm here. So, um, can you tell us about Howard the Duck? He's this. Some of you probably know about him, but for those who don't, he's uh, this this comic. He's this cantankerous, sarcastic, cigar chomping duck alien. Every duck's got his limit, and you scum have pushed me over the line. Jimmy, do you like to see what I see? A talking duck? Yeah, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> I've been doing too much toot. Shoot! Fly away! No one laughs at a master of quack foo. And the comics originally came out in the 70s, I think. Yeah, yeah, mid-late 70s. Right. And so how is your 2015 Howard going to be different? Uh, More hip-hop references. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, get rid of the disco. Um, uh, Trying to stay true to the character of the talking duck stranded on Earth. (laughs) Right. Uh, my only kind of update to it is I've made him uh, a private investigator in New York to give him uh, something to do, you know, right. instead of just being kind of thrown around. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's uh, the tricky thing with comics, which kind of ties into the superhero casting thing, is that it's static. Comics are static. Mm-hmm. Like Spider-Man will always be roughly the same age, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so with Howard, uh, the original draw was the fact that he was like this strange creature in a world that he didn't understand. So... My thing is that he's kind of a strange creature in a world he's grown accustomed to. So what do you do then? You get a job. You get a job, you bum. <laughs> yeah. So you mean he will have been here all this time, your Howard? 
Yeah, yeah, not the 40 years or whatever it is, but uh, I think... For some time. Yeah, yeah, time time in comic book continuity shifts. Like the Fantastic Four were like World War II kind of uh, veterans, and now they're like Afghanistan veterans, you mm-hmm. know? It's canon now. It's canon. It's canon, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very important. Can you... Okay, so have you seen the Howard the Duck movie? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it was a, it was a huge movie for me as a kid. I loved it. Um to the point where the the end song, Leah Thompson starts playing Howard the Duck, yeah. mm-hmm. like in true '80s movie fashion, Howard ends up on stage and just knows how to play guitar really well. I recorded that off the TV to put on my mixtapes in grade six. So yeah, oh, you were destined for this. I was kind of yeah, <laughs> but it is. Crazy. It was such a weird movie. Like a lot of people yeah. think it's like one of the worst movies of all time. Flip side, there's a. Yeah. It's like a cult classic, right? Yeah, yeah. What's the fervor for Howard the Duck? Um, there's definitely a nostalgia factor there. Uh, the movie kind of did away with a lot of what made the comic great because the comic was kind of about satirizing uh, society and there was really none of that in the movie. The movie was basically, it's a talking duck. That's funny, right? Yeah. Um, with weird kind of adult things in there. Like there was a it's kissing. shot of a... There's, well, there's, 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 <laughs> That's adult. adult. Well, there's also a uh, topless lady duck. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. With in the tub. Firm, beautiful yeah, <laughs> lady breasts. Doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of uh, uh, birds, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, just to get back on the the canon thing, I mean, you obviously were a fan for a really long time. Now you are establishing the new canon for Howard the Duck. Yeah. Is that that's a weird thing for for a fan? Yeah, yeah, it's strange. The uh, the one nice and kind of weird thing about doing work for someone like Marvel Comics is the fact that uh, they oversee this. Like, like it matters to them what I do. <laughs> so, like in the first issue, I wanted to put Spider Man in because I've always wanted to write Spider Man. So that goes through a That's spider amazing. office. It's called the Spider Office. Oh my God, is that and, true? perfect? Yeah, and they have to uh, make sure things okay, and they have to approve things. It has to go through that office. Yeah, it has to go through that office. I made a request. It's like the government of superheroes, Department of Spider Man. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like that. And I made a request to use Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the editorial note I got was, um, uh, we have to double check because we're pretty sure at that time he will be on the other edge of the known universe fighting the white demons. Yeah. So those are just weird editorial notes FYI. to get. It's important bureaucracy job. to have yeah. <laughs> in the Marvel offices. Yeah, so there's a weird sense of responsibility because mm-hmm. like kind of continuing this tradition. Uh, but also you want to do kind of new and yeah. fresh things. So yeah. and you have Spider-Man in your toolbox, which is a pretty crazy. I know, thing. I yeah. know. Like my assumption is I'll be fired after four <laughs> issues, so I'm just kind of throwing in all the characters I want. Like She-Hulk's in issue one because I love She-Hulk. Who doesn't love mm-hmm. She-Hulk? Right. It's Hulk, yeah. but She. Well, but it's, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about this now. But comic books are are so clearly now mainstream pop culture. Yeah. Like I think even as recently as I don't know, because the first Spider-Man movie was 2002, 2003, yeah. and that really was like the, a, a major kickoff for for the fact that Marvel can now. Well, again, Marvel didn't do, make that movie, but Marvel can now print money every time it puts out yeah. a movie. Yeah. Um, and and comics culture was the realm of this like slighted nerd, and now there's this happening. I mean, how has that affected you as sort of a comic book fan for a long time, and now you're on the comic book side? Well, the, the hope is that it brings people over to the comics. I don't know if that's actually kind of played out that way. Mm-hmm. Like, if you enjoy the Avengers, pick up the Avengers comic. Um, I think people are still kind of strangely embarrassed to read them, but they'll shell out money to sit in a movie theater and watch muscle men punch each other for an hour and a half. Um, so that's a little strange. It, it it affects the writing of something like Howard the Duck because um, the original issues of Howard 
satirize a lot of like popular culture, like kung fu movies of the time and Star Wars did parody of that. But popular culture is now these comic movies, so it would be weird to parody the thing that you know mm-hmm. that that sh- the thing is itself. The, is the yeah. thing itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I remember when I was I was a kid and I read, I grew up, like, sort of reading X-Men comic books. I was, yeah. like, Age of Apocalypse kind of guy. That was, like, my big kickoff point. Yeah. And I remember, like, going into comic book stores and being, I mean, whether or not people are going to the comic books now, comic book stores, the the, the crowd is different. It's not the sort of uh, cliched nerd or whatever uh, that, that sort of once housed, that were once housed by them. Yeah. Um, is, there, is there a kind of resentment in some way to the fact that it has become mainstream now, comic book culture? Um, among specific nerds like nerds have kind of become the new bully mm, yeah like you kind of see it a lot especially with uh, online mm-hmm. because it's so easy for them to become bullies and uh, kind of lash out at people for having different uh, takes or coming into a thing like superhero comics without a full breadth of knowledge of it like you're fake you're fake you don't belong here which is crazy yeah like that's what signals the death of something on that note like going back to what Julia was saying about Michelle Rodriguez yeah. and this sort of backlash against the idea of a black Spider-Man or a female um, Green Lantern. Where do you think that indignation comes from? Do you think it's it's a kind of um, nostalgia, like a stubborn nostalgia, or is it discrimination, or is it both? Oh, man, I think it's probably both. There's this weird stubbornness to a nerd, you know, like mm-hmm. the thing they love has to be the thing they love forever. Mm-hmm. Like a few years ago... Spider-Man, they wanted to like dissolve his marriage to Mary Jane Watson in the comics because it's dumb having a character be married in a, something that never ends. Um, and so Marvel found a way to have it happen and fans lost their mind, lost their mind. They have no concept of anything beyond the uh, the book that they pick up and s- slavishly read. You know, a lot of the people that get upset about this are traditionally white dudes maybe without a big range of social skills, maybe they were bullied a lot. Mm-hmm. So they see it as an attack on them. Mm-hmm. They see this hero as reflective of them. And if this hero changes into something that is not them, they'll cry tokenism and no, no, this has to be this way. I'm like, well, why does it have to be that way? Spider-Man should be black. Like, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. And it's funny when... Um, why is that a good idea? Because the Peter Parker character, he's supposed to be like kind of a an outcast and... And, and picked on and you could you could kind of play with that a bit more if he was a black teenager as well plus there's nothing that says like Peter Parker has to be a wiper there's no, no there's no character trait that's like only a white no. man can sling webs from his wrists like it's no, not it's not and so so what happened with that was like so Donald Glover mm-hmm. there's the rumors about him doing that and weird backlash and he wanted to do it and um, obviously it, it never happened but the one of the writers of Spider-Man a guy named Brian Michael Bendis um, his children are black uh, and so he saw that as an opportunity to create a black Spider-Man. So he did. He created a whole new kind of character uh, named Miles Morales. He was Spider-Man of a different universe. And uh, and it went over insanely well. Mm-hmm. And, like, so many kids, black kids specifically, like, would send him letters just saying, like, this means so much to me. Like, I'm being reflected in popular culture. They recently remade Annie, mm-hmm. and she yeah. was, like, a little black orphan girl from Harlem, and yeah. that got really great reviews because they're like, oh, that makes sense that that this narrative can now fit into it perfectly. The most successful movie series is Fast and the Furious. Yeah. And that is such a mixed cast. And, like, I think a, a big part of the draw is, like, people are seeing themselves reflected on screen and coming out and watching that. Like, the problem with, the problem with comics and the problem with, like, 
like Iron Man and Thor and Captain America and Black Widow and like they're all white people um, is because they were created in like the 60s. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that uh, they became the emblems of these uh, franchises. And so people always just buy what they know. Like the idea of pitching something that isn't Captain America like just doesn't fly because you have a built-in fan base. Um, like new characters just, they never grab hold anymore at least not on a larger popular culture scale. Um, like I think the last like big breakthrough character was probably like Wolverine and that was like in the 70s. Mm-hmm. A white guy, Canadian. <laughs> we did it. So that's all right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so talking about, speaking of characters that um, can have a foothold or perhaps creating new mythologies, can you tell us about Iptara and why you decided to make um, Keith Kanga the lead character, a gay Indian man? Um, it kind of originated back with, uh, the other book I work on, Sex Criminals, with Matt Fraction, uh, where a couple of straight-ish white dudes, and, uh, and when we started writing that, the story was from the guy's point of view, and it became pretty evident early on that that was easy and kind of stupid (laughs) of us, like, like all the obvious jokes were there, and, uh, when... Matt stopped and kind of made it from the female protagonist's point of view to start with. Um, it clicked and it made him work harder as a writer. It made me work harder as an artist because I actually have trouble drawing women. <laughs> and that's because I've just been drawing myself. Like, uh, you always have a mirror, you draw yourself. Like, so it's all these women with beards that I'm drawing. It's horrible. <laughs> and so I learned then that, like, um, it's best to not take the easy way out or at least question why you're doing it that way. And Captara, uh, I wanted the lead to not be just a straight white dude. Um, And there's a bit of a freedom that's kind of afforded me with the fact that it's set on a different planet. So I'm not, uh, I don't have to necessarily tackle societal issues and problems uh, that I don't have a full knowledge of, you know? Like I wouldn't sit down and write a comic about racism in the South. Mm -hmm. Like that's not my story to tell, right? But by having this take place somewhere else and new, somewhere where there actually isn't any kind of social stigma at all, about sexuality like all the characters are kind of fluid in sexuality and accepting on on this planet of he-men that's the other thing it's kind of a planet of he-men characters and there's nothing more uh, homoerotic than he-man sounds like a hit maker (laughs) but he's indian yeah why not okay i don't know no i just because like he's from india but he immigrated to the he-man planet what are the immigration he went through he went through customs and they approved him no it's uh he's the nephew of uh the woman that's kind of funding a space mission and uh he kind of becomes part of it and then they get in trouble and trapped in a wormhole <laughs> as you do mm-hmm. and you crash land yeah. on a planet um like we, we were we were trying to do things that we don't necessarily see all the time like the crew is like four five people and I made two of them black women because if you're going to have a black woman in any kind of entertainment, it's always one. It's like, oh, yeah, there's there's the black woman. I'm like, what? let black women be the dominant, <laughs> you know, on this on this spaceship. Yeah. yeah. It's oh. weird. Like, uh, I mean, me 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought about any of this and it would have been all white dudes and that's that. And. Um, and there is this kind of push sort of at a greater on a greater level to not just what we've been talking about, but also like Saga is one of the most yeah. successful graphic novels right now. And yeah. that is a, a, effectively about a multiracial couple. That's yeah. really what that story is about. Yeah. And that's and that's a crazy hit. Do you think that this the that the future of comics is just 
moving away from from you know what's comfortable which it has been white dudes yeah yeah like you know i do all the comic conventions now and so i well i started doing them about 10 15 years ago and it's, it was pretty uniformly dudes mostly white dudes mm-hmm. and now it's so much more diverse and uh like especially through sex criminals like um the fans of the book are 50 percent women and it's so refreshing. I didn't realize how refreshing that would be mm-hmm. until I was actually at the show signing books for people and talking to them. I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm just not I'm not talking to the same dudes with their weird nerd questions <laughs> all the time. Like we have a letters page in each issue. And like comics traditionally would have those. You'd have one page of letters. And it's kind of taken over the book. It's like 10 pages of letters now per issue. And the best letters, as my writer points out, are always the ones from women um, they actually ask interesting questions and have interesting stories to tell. And the guys are usually just like nitpicking about nerd stuff and uh, just trying to out funny us, which good luck with that. It's <laughs> um, your job. <laughs> yeah, it's my job. What I think about the mythology thing is that Michelle Rodriguez's statement is a bit of a cop out because I, do, I get what she's saying. It would be nice if there were. Yeah new mythologies because the ones we have are pretty tired but those are our myths for a reason like people will keep seeing spider-man movies even though they're crappy or keep seeing james bond movies even though they're crappy because we love those stories and we want to see them told the same way again and again and so i think it would be good if we could just alter them somewhat to reflect different kinds of people and because they're such great stories they will always survive like that's what makes them myths and so i think there's this fear maybe on the nerd side that they'll they'll somehow crumble if we touch them or play with them too much but yeah. they're you know retroactively erase the history of the character or something like that yeah, yeah it's a kind of a self-perpetuating thing too like mm-hmm. there are a lot of bad james bond movies but they kept going because they're is what you do you put out a james bond movie like spider-man's had a few bad movies there will be another spider-man movie but it's also acceptance on on consumers' part right like i mean yeah. for instance one of my favorite myths of my culture is this uh I, d- I don't know exactly the name, but basically it's about a, a, a man monkey who goes around solving, uh, getting into crazy adventures on this, like, carpet. Uh, and it's, like, a great, like, there's a TV show that's, is like, one of the Disney's most... Disney's Aladdin? No. False. The carpet <laughs> um, moves, right? It's not just him at home the carpet is The carpet. carpet is moving. Okay. He's got, right. like, a monk friend. He's got various different things. Yeah. And it's, like, a, it's like brilliant. It's funny. Like, it was on TV when I was young um, in Cantonese, and it was, like, one of the most, I'm pretty sure it was one of the most successful shows in, in Chinese history. Um, and... That's like that's something that I think works for any crowd, but we don't have people looking to consume that right now. And yeah. that's I think that ha- there has to be some onus on consumers saying, "Hey, I want to see other stuff." And maybe we're getting to that point now. Maybe we will see a man monkey. I think to to Emma's earlier point about just trying to mold old stories into into to new ones while keeping the foundation the same, it's just it seems like it's just good business for the creativity. Of something like yeah. mm-hmm. how many times can you tell the same story over and over again isn't it interesting to have a different angle on something like this past summer i i went to go see um i went to go see lauren hill perform and lauren hill put out that great seminal album in the in the late 90s and she hasn't really done that many things since then and everybody was so excited to see her and she sang a lot of those same songs but she did them really differently they had like a jamaican dance hall theme to them and there was a big section in the crowd that was like oh why can't you just play it like it was on the album but then there were the other half. They're like, oh, that's, you know, that's it, it breeds new life into mm-hmm. them. There's a new Star Wars movie that's coming out. And 
And part of the story is is a sympathetic tale of a stormtrooper. You know, we've never seen that before. Doesn't that sound interesting? Well, we don't know if it's it's going to be it's about a, a stormtrooper. Sorry, it's a rumor. A hymn. A rumor, I should say. I just want to say that I was at that Lauren Hill concert with Julia, and it was terrible. <laughs> Emma, let's so take you, this offline. Was it was it terrible because it wasn't what you wanted, or you didn't like that particular? She just she's lost it. I love her, but she should she shouldn't you know. It's not broke. We have lost the narrative of the segment. Disagree. All right, so let's um, talk about Lauren Hill for a while. Let's, <laughs> let's get into this. Let's throw this out there. Lauren Hill, that's Spider-Man. Whoa. That, that I there. would watch that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming in, Chip. Hey, thanks for having me. As far as album releases go, Madonna is certainly no virgin. On Friday, The Edge Pushing Artist released her 13th studio record, Rebel Heart. Here's the lead single, Living for Love. Is, it's hard to see Madonna as anything other than as an icon, more in theory than execution these days. Uh, she's become a regular at the Grammys, that bastion of institutional stodginess in music, and it seems like pushing the envelope, which is to say being offensive, is all she can really do anymore. And it brings up the uncomfortable question, can a controversial pop star still maintain the essence of who she is at the age of 56? Uh, let's start this way. Emma, what did you guys think of the album? I thought the album was really confused. There were lots of bizarre trap influences and it was kind of like Madonna trying to be Nicki Minaj but when the album worked which was rare it was when she was sort of like a a gay you know a gay diva icon like when her when she sort of took the electronic route where she had big anthemic techno tracks that I could see being played at gay pride and I like that stuff and I think that's where Madonna can succeed especially at her age but when she tries to be Nicki Minaj it just doesn't work out and I think that part of the reason is that when we think of divas, we think of them as being these powerful women who do what they want to do when they want to do it. And you don't get the sense that Madonna really wants to be dropping acid and sniffing glue and having group sex, as she claims in, on her album. I don't think it's this double standard that makes us find that distasteful that Madonna's a woman and she's an older woman and therefore can't be sexual. I think it's that... She doesn't really want to be doing this stuff. She wants to take a warm bath at the end of the day. <laughs> and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and she should just admit that because it's just getting to be too much. She's falling over. Her cape is getting caught on things. And I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I just, uh, you know, uh, you brought up the point of it, that she is taking this this EDM tack. And that sort of has been going on over the, la- the course of the last few albums. But, you know, the producers on this album are pretty significant EDM artists. But what's weird about her is that this is her taking in EDM without actually engaging in the culture. Like, I can't imagine uh, Madonna at, like, an EDM festival. Uh, I don't know if you, maybe you Next guys Next Veld headliners, Madonna and Skrillex. Yeah, but also, but EDM also is not a genre that really focuses on its singers, right? These are, you know, when you go to an EDM concert, this is a, it's a stage where basically there's one guy and he's pushing buttons, and that's really enough for most of the people who are at this EDM festival. Um, there's a lot of singers on EDM songs that just haven't really succeeded on their own. They haven't been able to translate uh, their successes on songs into, you know, sort of mainstream crossover success. I think if you look at Kiza, that's someone who is starting to do that, but it's 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 a tricky world to, to cross over from EDM, and, and it's weird for Madonna, this massive icon in her own right, rightly so, the queen of pop, um, for her to take this angle insofar that 
it's not a star making it's not a star making genre julia yeah i think that with this album as she has done in with the past few ones she's in the habit of collecting all the hottest trendiest most talented writers and bankable writers producers performers and she just kind of saturates with them in the hopes that it'll be a big hit. She did that with this one, as you say. She also um, enlisted the producer from the the Heim record, mm. and she got the co-writer from Miley's Wrecking Ball. And so she's just whatever has uh, demonstrably successful in modern popular music. She just she just grabs on, and sometimes it works. Like I think that she had Pharrell and Timbaland in her 2008 album. I think Four Minutes with Justin Timberlake was on that. Like and get got four minutes to say. Yeah. yeah. That was the big one, but I think the one she did with Pharrell was better, the Give It To Me. Um, But the thing with Rebel Heart is that it's just not very good. And it's not, I don't, it's not because it's auto-tuned into oblivion, but like you say, Emma, like some of her uh, lyrics are about like jumping into a pool with all of her clothes on and pouring beer into a shoe and drinking out of it and dropping acid and it sounds like a Miley Cyrus weekend it does not sound like something Madonna does and it's her lyrics are too distant with what we know about her like she's crazy fit and she has a live-in macrobiotic cook and it just these lyrics make her sound like a college kid hanging out with high schoolers hoping that they'll think she's cool and she just can't pass as a teenager anymore right and and that's a thing that a lot of sort of older artists have to deal with. You know, it's well within their right. These are people with massive legacies uh, who can get the hottest people in. And there's obviously going to be value in bringing in top-level producers to make pop music. That's sort of how pop music is made. But with... with I, I mean, I, I look at the example of um, Jay-Z's Blueprint 3, and that was an album uh, that kind of was his, ma- his main comeback record. He had come out with, um, with an American Gangster before that, uh, after releasing the Black album, which everyone thought was going to be his last album ever. And the thing that made that album so bad for me wasn't just the fact that he had like clearly lost a step. It was the fact that he was just bringing in all these all these other artists, these younger artists, you know, Drake and J. Cole, uh, Rihanna, uh, Kid Cudi, Mr. Hudson. And it just, yeah, and it just felt like Jay-Z was vampiring off kind of the, the, the youthful just qualities. What it's, that's what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah, I also think that so much of pop music and any kind of diva icon, you you buy into this dream, right? You don't really believe that a lot of these stars are doing what they're claiming to do in their songs, like when rappers talk about all of their women and all of their money and their cars or whatever. But you believe that that's what they want. That's their dream, Mm -hmm. at least. With Madonna, it's like, I feel like she's lying to us and there's something kind of sad about it. I think that poppy, dancey music is for young people because at its crux, it's carefree. It's like road trips and dance parties and summer break. But people get your their backup kind of when you mention Madonna and age in the same breath. Like, don't be ageist and let mm-hmm. her do what she wants. And I'm not saying that she's too old in a, like, a get-off-the-stage grandma kind of way. Like, not at all. But I think that it's she's just too experienced for the kind of music that she keeps making. And it's this cycle of electro-dance music with these trite lyrics. And someone asked me, like, well, why doesn't she evolve then? Like, instead of trying to be relevant to young people, why doesn't she, she try to be relevant to, to older people? And I think that despite the fact that she's, like, a first-class Hall of Fame break the mold kind of performer she's really a mediocre songwriter and she doesn't really seem capable of much else musically and it seems that she's outgrown the genre that she insists upon remaining inside of is she a mediocre songwriter though? i don't think she's that good of a songwriter. but she's had so many amazing songs did she write didn't she write like a prayer and well but when was that a long, <laughs> long, a long time, time ago, ago but that's i think one of the best songs ever written. i think but i think it's because 
it's also like it's dancey. It's got that. It's not because it's a. I don't no, want to say it's not a great song, song. in any compat like in any form. If you were to play that in any, that's I don't an think she has song. longevity in terms of a songwriter. I don't. Well, agree to disagree on on like a prayer because I I'll, I would agree with side oh, with I Emma. Oh, I think like no, I'm not not siding with Emma. I think like a prayer is good, but right. like a prayer was written in the '80s. Yeah, but sa- it's it's but, a I mean, timeless pop okay, song. Okay, but you know what you could say like pr- like Prince is a genius, mm-hmm. for example, and he's still around. But he's kind of like a musical geni- genius recluse. He's not pulling these kind of. I don't know. It feels like it feels a little too stunty. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, and Madonna doesn't want to take a war bath. Maybe she is still a party animal, and she just hasn't grown out of it. It's like the Banger Sisters, kind of. Mm-hmm. I think she just wants to be seen that way. I don't think that's what she's really like. Well, Prince is an interesting example because Prince still comes out with music actually pretty regularly, and if you listen to it, it's kind of the same stuff that he. I mean, it's it's the funky jams that he was really so known for in in the '80s. That you know that Purple Rain quality stuff. Uh, and there's a lot of people that still love. Seeing Prince, and I, and I wonder yeah. why why it is that we you know, are fine with what Prince is doing, but when Madonna takes the stage, she just reeks of desperation. That's what it is. And I, gu- I guess so, but I think it's because she's trying to buy into this teenager pop dream. And like I think one of her more recent albums, Confessions on a Dance Floor, which was in 2005, which was like a revamped urban disco theme, um, was really good. And it it kind of insinuates kind of realness about her like she was the the queen of that time she has this fair hair and this leotard and she's like in a dance studio with a boombox and you can kind of imagine her as she was because she came out of that late 70s early 80s underground new york scene and that tone felt more like a reclamation like empowering like the the note of that was kind of like i was the beginning of modern pop music don't you forget it but when she uses such like heavy edm or hip-hop influences it just doesn't look that good on her because it makes her appear like she's a hanger on instead of the grand dam that she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess Prince, like for all of the things you could criticize Prince for, there's no question that he is like so essentially him. Like that is a man who's extremely comfortable with who he is. But I just I want to get back to this this question of ageism and, and whether or not, you know, we want our pop stars to kind of shuffle off after a certain point of their career. Um, but the question here is, you know, is there a certain point where you think musicians should no longer put music out? I don't think it's about musicians. I think that she is so unique because, first of all, it's pop music. And like I said, pop music is a young person's kind of genre. And she is there's nobody like Madonna. There is no other 56-year-old pop superstar that doesn't exist. So I think it's hard to... There's Cher. And I think that Madonna should go the route of Cher, which is... I think it's fine when she does her like techno anthems. That's what she should be doing. It works. But that's an evolution, too. Like, Cher didn't start out as a techno queen. Of course not. I'm an expert on Cher. Okay? <laughs> I know that about you, yes. <laughs> and I think that she should just, that's the route she should be taking. She should leave behind, like, evolution. the trap and hip-hop. It's not for her. It doesn't... So where do you think she should go? What should I she think do? She, I think that the the single on her album... Living for Love. Living yes, for, that was I think the that's best a one. good song. But you know why? And it's that will it's... be remixed by Diplo and Skrillex <laughs> and Katrinata a... and every kind of DJ, and it will be a great... It's a callback to the 80s and 90s, like house music, which is very heavily disco, um, is anchored in a lot of disco. And that's why I think that that one does really well. But I want to talk about the idea of like a pop culture expiry date. Uh, and this is something I think about all the time. I, I can't remember who it was that, that said this first. I heard this in the last year or so. But someone sort of came up with this thought experiment that wondered, hey, should musicians actually only come out with one album? And let me explain what he means by that. He basically suggests that the first album that a musician makes is the one that matters the most. And it's hard to disagree with that. You know, it's the one that um, you are putting a lot of work and you spent your entire life basically to that point, working to the point where you create 
created this album that's so clearly a creative statement about who you are. Uh, and every album after that, due to music contracts and, and forces that are not necessarily creative, you have to keep putting out putting out records. Um, and I kind of and I, I and again, this is a thought experiment, so I'm not I'm certainly not saying like, yeah, we should all cut everyone off after one. Um, but no, I think that a lot of artists do have their one statement record very early in their career uh, in their first three. And there's no question that I think whether or not we acknowledge it, we kind of do want our pop stars to stay a certain way and after a while sort of just shuffle off and not notice. Um, pop culture is, as a generality, not just pop music, but I think pop culture is a young person's game. You know, I'm in my mid-20s, but even I'm aware that pop culture is kind of being made for me right now. Uh, and as a pop culture writer, I'm aware that I kind of have my own window. It's kind of like um, Abe Simpson uh, in uh, in The Simpsons. He has this quote about how, uh, you know, he used to be with it. I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. It'll happen to you. And I'm aware of that too as a pop culture writer, that th there, are, there are these kinds of expiry dates. And at a certain point, there is a matter of cultural relevance, isn't there? There's also a flip side to that. If you think about Lauren Hill, she is somebody who put out one amazing album, and everything she's done since then has been, in my opinion, insignificant. And we still expect a lot from her. It's not like we thank her for only putting out one album. We want more from her. And we sometimes question her talent because she's only put out this one thing. Was she, in a way, a one-hit wonder? Was she? I mean, I don't really think that I think she's a mm -hmm. genius, but I think there's a pressure when you look at it the other from the other way. I don't too. think that's always true. Bob Dylan uh, came out with Blood on the Tracks in the 70s. I, I, it's, I, I don't think there's a metric, there, there's a formula. But I will say that Bob Dylan, when if you go see a Bob Dylan show, people yeah, don't really receive a Bob Dylan maybe, show. Maybe, but he's, been, uh, he's on what he's called the never-ending tour, much like Cher, in fact. About, oh, and he's been going for 50 years. Yeah. So he's kind of like Madonna, I suppose, in that way. But there, is, but there is value to artists who kind of are encased in amber and don't really put out other records and then come out you know, 15, 20 years that's from like the own. ones who die when they're 27 and, and we look at them with rose-colored glasses. It's the same thing. That's that's what, it's, that's what a projection. Yeah, like if Tupac were alive today, he'd yeah. be on some horrible reality sure. TV show. Yeah. If Amy Winehouse kept putting on music, we would just we'd, yeah. we'd put her on the same reality TV show. Career. But, but I mean, that is the flip side, though, then, of Madonna, right, who did make these massive, iconic hits and keeps putting out music god bless her but i think it's what she's putting out though it's not that she is still putting out music she she can like share like there are people that can keep going it's just that not knowing how to properly evolve and i think as to emma's point she's just, it's just starting to look desperate yeah it's not even that she's writing songs about partying and having sex it's that she's writing songs about participating in like the most base acts that you can part like yeah her lyrics know, are trite they kind of always have glue been. well it's kind of like uh like in the new album madonna does have a song called iconic and i think that she is talking sort of about the specific thing the, the sort of the flip side of being an icon if you try and fail get up again destiny will choose you in the end if you don't make the choice, you don't use your voice, someone else will speak for you instead. For me, that actually uh, was probably one of my favorite songs of the album, not just because Chance the Rapper, uh, a rapper I like a lot, is on it too, but um, I think it's, it was finally Madonna sort of saying, hey, I have actually some insights that can be kind of universal at you know whatever age I am, uh, and I think that stuff really spoke to me more than really any of the rest of the work. I think that it's, that that song is just... It's like an it's a faux empowering kind of 
thing. Like, she's not relatable anymore. All she can really sing about that's real is that, like, I live on a mountain where nobody else lives, and sometimes it's hard to be an icon. Send, you know, like, I don't know. I didn't like it that much. Moral of the story, don't wear a cape on stage. Yeah, I think we can agree that that's probably the, uh, <laughs> the lasting lesson. Well, that's it for this week. Find new episodes every Friday at theclaims.ca and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Beyond Pod. Leave us a rating or a comment on iTunes or drop us a comment on the site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast, On the Hill. You can also hear some of our columnists, like our very own Emma Title, read their work at McLean's Voices. Both are on iTunes and Stitcher. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Chip Zadarsky on Twitter at Zadarsky. You can follow Emma at Emma Rose Title. Follow Julia at Julia Del J. And me at Adrian Kaylee. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.